Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 68, recorded on May 29th, 2017. My name is Julie Bayfan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Shoebalzer. Hi, Mom. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm good. It's a rainy uh, Memorial Day, so there will be no barbecuing here. Well, I was expecting uh, you to break out the grill, and now I'm sad. Well... I think you're coming over for dinner, and just to let you know, it's meatloaf. Well, I think we also both agreed that we could wear our pajamas to dinner. There would be no judgment. Well, I'm still in mine. I'm still in I, mine, but I have to get to your house, so I feel like I will have to put on a bra and some pants at some point. I will be so appreciative. There you go. I'm sure everyone else will be too, and I'm glad I shared that. Anyway, so one of the reasons, I don't know why you're lolling around in your pajamas, but I'm lolling around in my pajamas because I have worn more false eyelashes in this month than I think I have in my entire life. I had a, um, I went to CVS the other day and I bought eight pairs of fake eyelashes, which I haven't done in a long, long time because I've always just had a stash of them sitting around. And so I am not about to become a drag queen or anything else. I'm not out clubbing. I have, in fact, been filming a bajillion things this month. It's, um, you know, sometimes when people ask me what I do for a living, I have trouble defining it. Uh, But recently, I have felt like saying I'm a video vixen. That's what I do. I'm a a craft video vixen. I think that should be on your new card. Right? Don't you think so? I so, think so. Uh, the month kicked off with a trip to HSN, which is always a fabulous three-ring circus. Uh, for those people who don't know, HSN is Home Shopping Network. I made the mistake, shall we say, of watching HSN before the first time I was on, you know, sort of really like really watching a lot of it to get into the mode and see what was happening. And I unfortunately found myself wanting everything <laughs> on the TV. You know, will this wig look good on me? I think I could use a wig. I'm sure there's some way that I'd use a wig uh, and a million other things. So they are really good at selling you stuff. And um, it's, it, it's, it's one of those things where I always am like, danger, danger, don't watch too closely or you might want everything that you see. That's what they're hoping. That's their entire business model. I know. I mean, that's my point in going there, too. It's true. But it is. It's it's addictive. It really is. And it's fun. And so I, I've been there a couple times now when it wasn't a 24-hour craft day, when we were mixed in with, like, jewelry and cleaning supplies. And those days are less fun for me. Um, I love it when we're on during a 24-hour craft supply you know, hour because I get to see all the different craft supplies and stuff that people are making. And I get to, you know, run into a lot of the same people. Um, this was a particularly interesting, oh, we're not allowed to use that word. This was a particularly, uh, exciting, uh, airing because normally when you get to the studio, so the deal is you get there the day before to set up. And the first thing you do is commandeer your tables because obviously during the presentation, right, everything's on these tables which wheel in and out of the sets, and that's how it works. So uh, normally, you know, finding tables is like a little bit of a challenge, but it's not like it's a nightmare, you know. Uh, This time around, whatever was right before us, whatever product, day of products it was, they were table-heavy. 
Um, a lot of times, like if fashion's before you, there'll be 100,000 tables because they don't use a table at all. If jewelry's there, each jewelry person needs like a little table. If electronics are on, they only use the electronic table. So, you know, but for whatever reason, we were fighting for the tables. So it was so bad uh, that, and I mean this, in the, you know, in the best way possible, but even Anna Griffin's people were having trouble getting tables. And when I saw, because, you know, Anna Griffin is the queen of HSN Crafts. And so when I saw that her people were, you know, begging stage managers and stuff for tables, I thought, how on earth am I going to finagle a table out of this? But the good news is I lived in New York for 17 years. And when it comes to uh, figuring out how to finagle stuff, I got that handled. So it took me a little while and it took a little ingenuity and it took some being pushy, uh, but always with a smile and very nice. But I, I think my proudest moment is that I managed to get two tables and all of it being very nice and, you know, managing to get it done. So that felt fantastic. And like, I felt like I had had a victory before I even set anything up. Applause. applause. I know, I know. But these are the little dramas in life that actually make such a huge difference because there was a while that I was just like sitting on the floor, you know, uh, hoping that something would happen. And then, uh, you know, uh, going around scouting out what tables looked like they had come off air and they were done, but just sitting there and hadn't been cleaned. And, you know, I sort of, I found a way. And the even the even bigger part, if I may for a moment, is there are two electrical outlets in the entire hallway that the tables are parked in. And it's a lengthy, you know, uh, labyrinthian hallway. And I managed to get my tables up against the electricity. Again, with a little barter, a little smile. People, if you're nice and you can explain to people your problem, most people I find want to help you, you know? And so... That has worked for me and continues to work for me and makes me feel victorious. And so the table drama was all set. Now, the reason that the tables were so important and wrangling the tables was so important is because it takes us several hours. That's right, hours to set up the tables because we have to unpack all of the samples, make any additional samples. That's right, I said make. We have to craft up any additional samples that we need to fill the table. Then we need to test all the machines. We need to... Make sure that the presentation is properly designed and that all the supplies are there for each one. We need to test, you know, all the settings on everything. We need to... So it just, it takes several hours to get all of that done, obviously. And then uh, my, my makeup appointment was at 4 a.m. the next day for the first airing. So it meant that I had to get up at 3. So I knew that I had to go to bed at like a halfway normal hour. So I think we managed to get out of the... Of the HSN, maybe like 8, 8.30, which meant I was heading to the hotel for decent nights of sleep. Whereas if I had not been able to find tables, I would have had to stay until, you know, 11, 12, just like hanging around for a table so and setting it up. So that was fantastic. Um, so then the funniest part is, so I had a brand new, the, a brother very kindly sends a handler with me, someone to sort of like help out and do the driving and like all that kind of stuff. Um, and I knew one this time around. And she said to me, maybe after our second airing, we had three airings, uh, she said, oh, you know, there was this woman the other day who was talking to us. And I looked at her and I said, that was this morning. 
And she went, <laughs> what? And I said, yeah, yeah, that was this morning. <laughs> and that's the thing about HSN is it, first of all, it has the casino feel. It is, it is windowless. It is air conditioned up the yin yang. You have no idea what time of day or where you are. There are people there 24 seven. And all you do is eat, sleep and go on air. Eat, sleep, go in air. Now, it sort of sounds like a dream vacation, but it's not quite. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it is a hysteria-inducing kind of experience. I love every minute of it, but I am hysterical every single time. And, you, and I will say, I did not nap because I'm a very bad napper. I worked in between, like did some computer work and some internet stuff, da, da, da. I probably should have napped because by the time we got to our 11.30-ish airing, I felt like my mouth and my brain were no longer connecting. 11.30 at night. Yeah, and I think that's because I had gotten up at 3 a.m., you know, done that airing, done some work, uh, had lunch, gone back, done the other airing, done some more work, had dinner. When I say all you do is eat and sleep and work, that's all you do. Uh, you know, and then gone to the studio and then I'm, I'm always a bundle of nerves and people are always surprised. And they say, you've done this so many times. How can you be so nervous? And I said, because there's always the chance that something terrible new is going to happen, you know? And I feel like if you're not nervous, then you're not sort of on point. So, well, you have had some minor disasters. I mean, I there was had. one time the internet went out or There's something. Time the internet and you were out. Using there was a time it. that the power went out. There was a time that, yes, I have had some issues. So, <gasps> breathe. Anyway, so all of it has been, it was a great experience. It was really good. We did a good job. I felt really good about it. The worst part, of course, is it's like midnight. You've worked all day. You've been up since 3 a.m. And now you have to clean up. I hate that the most of anything in the world is then you have to pack and you can't just like shove everything into the suitcase and like walk away. No, you have to like lovingly wrap each of the samples carefully, you know, put away everything so it's organized and easy to find. Da, 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 da. I mean, it's like, and I get it. Of course, it's important and you want it to be that way. But like, you know, at the end of the day, you're exhausted. Now, the saddest part is when you go and look at the trash you know, and you see everybody's just, you got samples that are trashed. You've got, you know, product that's trashed. You've just got like, because people can't take it with them or don't want to take it with them. And it's, it always makes me a little bit sad to see the trash can. Might be some d good dumpster diving yeah, in there. Yeah, there is some good dumpster diving. But anyway, so that was eyelash experience number one. Very exciting. Um, and my eyelash experience number two was I went for a week to New Jersey to work on, um, some videos and some photography for a new prototype product that I'm excited about and I can talk about, but I think you'll be excited about too. Now it's always interesting to work with prototypes for myriad reasons, you know, everything's in beta and you never know, uh, you know, um, if this is the finished way, even the instructions, you know, are in beta. And so, of course, as we're going through the videos, it's like we're encountering, oh, this instruction step is wrong. That needs to be changed because that's, you know, something simple like you don't think about it, but it says push these two buttons at the same time and you're supposed to let go of one but keep holding the other, but it doesn't say that. Right. So mm. I kept doing it and it wouldn't work. And, you know, there's this whole like, oh, no, you know, 
it's broken. And then the engineer came over and he did it because he's so used to doing it. And he just did it the way he always does it. And I said, wait a second, you just held the second button longer and let go of the first. And he was like, oh. And so then we were like, okay, the instruction needs to be changed. You know, because I think the thing is whenever you get used to something, you don't think about the instructions that much. I actually ran into that recently. I um, submitted my lesson for Lifebook, which is this huge online art journaling class. And I sent, you have to send in a PDF of instructions. So I sent in my instructions and they said, can you send back some, uh, you know, more detailed instructions? And I was like, "Mm, I don't know that I can. So I wrote back and I said, I don't know what the more detail is that you're looking for you know, could you be more specific if you just tell me I'm happy to incorporate, you know, those details in? Um, And then they came back and they said, you know, actually, if you just take a screenshot from your video of each of the steps that you've written out, I think that would help because people like the visual of seeing it rather than just reading it, you know? Um, So I went ahead and I did that. And it was interesting because I I hadn't really thought that people needed the visual of that since they have the video. I was like, well, the PDF is just a reference point, right? Why do they need this? But then I think there are people who learn and remember in all sorts of different ways. And maybe reading the instruction that I've written isn't clear. But if they see the image that corresponds to the video they've seen, then they'll go, oh, I get it. I remember what that was. So that was just a good learning for me. To, to just remember that, again, like things that you take for granted, I mean, there's two different, very different examples, right? This engineer who's been working on this product for years and me, you know, I've been doing my art thing, I guess, for years and like not thinking about how the end user is going to encounter these things. And that's why I think it's always good to get feedback from someone else, you know, before you send your lessons out. I used to run all my online classes by you, mom, remember? I'd send you the videos mm-hmm. and make you watch them and be like, do you think you could do this? Does this make sense to you? I am the lowest common denominator. So <laughs> if I can get it, we assume that other people can get it. Well, it wasn't the lowest common denominator. It was more like you're a person who isn't a natural crafter. So if you so if you could understand, you know, the, what you needed to do, then I felt like people, everybody could understand it. I would be insulted, except it's true. Mom, if you so were sending accept- me a recipe, and how often do I call you and ask you um, what I'm sure are stupid questions about cooking – Right. If I if I if I gave you a list like I watched that show Chopped where they give a basket of weird stuff and they make something magical out of it. And I think I don't know how on earth someone's brain works that they're able to do that. Whereas I feel like you watch Chop and you're like, oh, I do that every day. That's magic refrigerator meal, you know, where you open the fridge and just make a meal out of whatever happens to be in there. And I think but then on the other hand, I think, you know, I posted a face today as part of my hundred um, faces that I'm working on for the hundred day project. And I didn't like it very much. I, you know, and yet, you know, there's somebody who says to me, uh, in the comments, Oh, everything you make turns out great, you know? And I think that's always the thing, which is, I mean, a, we're too hard on ourselves more than anybody else's B, everybody has their area of knowledge or skill set. So you can make food into whatever you want. And I can make a pile of, you know, craft supplies into whatever I want. And there's somebody else who can make a pile of parts into an engine. And there's someone else who, you know what I mean? Everybody has their sort of magical area of knowledge. And it feels easy for you in that area. And the question 
I always think is how do you teach what you know so well and instinctively to other people? And there are people who are great at it and people who aren't. You know, you sent me an article recently about uh, the Mac store, working at the Mac store, at the Apple store. And one of the things that they that that article said is that people they're looking for people who like tech but who are good at explaining it to other people because it doesn't matter if your knowledge is super deep if you can't explain it to a customer when they walk in right in a way that they can understand so it's right. more important to them that you are like good at explaining things than that you have this incredible deep knowledge of tech and I was thinking that. I, I once asked Kathy Stell, who's the producer of Make It Artsy, why she had sort of plucked me from the crowd of the bajillions of people who come through the studio. And she said two things. She said, one, she said, your personality comes through the camera, which is obviously dumb luck, you know. Um, but she said, two, you have the talent to take a complicated idea and make it very simple, you know, and break it down for people. And in the end... You know, what that TV show or Scrapbook Soup or Scrapbook Memories or any of those other educational, you know, crafty art shows is about is about making people, teaching people how to do something that they think looks hard. It's the Bob Ross secret, you know, that he can he can teach you that with a single feather brush. I bought a feather brush after watching Bob Ross when I was 12 <laughs> years old because he told me that I could make trees if I used my little feather brush to make the happy little trees, you know? I think that there is a genius or a gift in people who can take their topic and teach it to you. You know, it's the difference between, Mom, you and I have gone to a lot of curatorial tours at many different museums. Sometimes they're fantastic. Sometimes they're not. And I think the big difference... It has nothing to do with what the art is and everything to do with who the curator is. Because some curators are able to... I, I believe that all curators are geeked out about what they do. You can't be a curator and not be geeked out about it. But some of them are able to talk about their choices and the artists and the work in a way that is accessible. And I'm mm -hmm. going to use the word interesting. And others are not able to do that. And they talk about all of it in ways that actually make it more confusing or, uh, seem so distancing, distancing or, or intellectual yeah. or like just out, out of my zone of, uh, being able to have any, uh, empathy is the wrong word, but kind of connection, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that's a huge, I mean, museumification is a huge conversation. And actually, while I was in New Jersey filming um, these videos, I went to MoMA for the opening of the Robert Rauschenberg Among Friends exhibit, which, P.S., is an, if you haven't seen it, you should see it. I want to go back at least one more time, hopefully more than that. It is an epic. It takes up the entire fourth floor exhibit. Um, MoMA, we have to say, well, Museum of yes, Modern Museum Art. Museum of Modern Art in New York City. It is so fantastic. And I thought I had seen a lot of Rauschenbergs over the year, 
over the years, I have seen almost none. I feel like there was so much work that was new to me that I haven't even seen in like pictures or books. There's a lot of work from his contemporaries, which is fantastic to see. So you see a lot of it in context. What was Jasper Johns doing? You know, what was Cy Twombly working on at the same time? Who were the people who he was communing with, communicating with doing? And the signage in that exhibit is beyond anything I've ever seen at MoMA. MoMA usually has this very, very like snotty, austere version of like, this is a painting, you know, uh, congratulations on seeing it. Here's the name, <laughs> you know, <laughs> congratulations. Here's the name of the person who did it. Here's the year it was painted. Here's who we borrowed or bought it from. Done. You know, and then maybe there'll be one little sign that's like, this room has art in it, period. <laughs> like it really, they're really horrible with their signs. And I, it's always a frustrating thing that they just don't give you any information. So I was kind of bowled over and shocked at just the sheer volume of signage. I mean, so I went to the exhibit with my brother and one of the things that he said um, is he said, he actually had to stop reading the signage at some point because he was so overwhelmed by the amount of information in it, yeah. which I thought was a fascinating idea because he said it's just – it's a lot to think about. And part of it is Rauschenberg went through so many different periods and iterations and thoughts. And I, I put a quote from him that I really like on my blog on Monday, which is today, which is not when you're hearing the podcast, I'm sure. Um, but it's basically about the idea that uh, – of the difference between ideas and curiosity. And I think I really saw in that exhibit that he was a curious soul – and that he just had so many questions. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And um, so I was glad for all the signage because it really put everything in context for me about how he moved from this idea into what seems like not a gentle slide, but a 90 degree turn into something else. And then another, you know, violent 90 degree turn somewhere else. Um, so that was fantastic. I also appreciated there was, um, a lot more, and I think, I think a, a lot of museums are doing this now more than they used to. And I think it's important is putting, uh, quotes from the artists into the signs more regularly. Yes. And I like hearing that voice because I feel like it used to be all the time what art critics said about these artists was how museums presented it. Oh, well, you know, Clement Greenberg says that this painting, blah, 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 blah. You know, and in the end, I'm not that interested in what Clement Greenberg says or why he thinks it's important. Clement Greenberg, by the way, is a famous art critic, if you didn't know. Um, but I am significantly more interested in what Robert Rauschenberg thought when he was creating. And it's almost like creating, uh, treating these dead artists like contemporary artists, because I think for contemporary artists, they have always allowed their voices to come through in the signage. And it's only now that we're saying, well, we have letters from Picasso. We've got letters from Matisse. We have letters from Monet. Why don't we incorporate that, you know, into the work so that you actually really hear from the artist and let them explain their point of view. So I'm not sure how I got on this tangent. How did I wander over here? Because you talked about going to the Rauschenberg exhibit while you were in New Jersey. And actually, yes. you were in New Jersey several times this month. Yes. 
I just love me some, by the way, I never realized how far New Jersey is from New York City. Like you can be 20 miles into New Jersey. You were like two hours from getting into New York City. It is outrage. I don't know how anybody does that commute every day. It would kill me. It was insane. Anyway, that's just, that's, that's neither here nor there. If you live in New Jersey and commute into New York City, I give you a high five. You are a soldier. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, oh, you know, but I was just thinking about how obviously museum signs are, are like teaching. They're explaining to people and they're finding a way to explain. And that's the same as what I'm trying to do when I create these, you know, craft videos and tutorial videos and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the, so after I, so I came back from New Jersey for like 36 hours to, to empty my suitcase and fill up another one. That's a lie. I didn't even empty the old suitcase. I just started I was going to say, I think I saw a photo today and there, all these filled suitcases okay. are lying around so in your house. I actually house. bought a new suitcase and just filled it with <laughs> stuff instead of unpacking the old suitcase. It was actually easier, a little more fancy than buying new underwear, but I also did that too. Um, <laughs> new underwear instead of laundry. It works. Uh, anyway, so I emptied, uh, what I could, what I desperately needed, like my cosmetics and dumped them into the new suitcase. And off I went to Cleveland, Ohio to film season three of Make It Artsy. So if you're looking for Make It Artsy, you can find it on your local PBS station. You can find it online. There's a new episode, I think, every week or every two weeks. You can also find some of the videos on YouTube. And then I think it's for like $40. You can buy the entire season on DVD. So if you figure that there are three to four segments per episode and there are 13 episodes, I can't do the math, but it's less than like a dollar a segment if it's $40, right? Am I doing math? Yes. Okay. Yes. Anyway, yes. thank you. Anyway, so it's a really good deal and, you know, cheaper than a lot of online classes and you get a ton of content. So that's available, I think, from makeitartsy.com. Um, and... The other and thing, you've been promised that. And I've been promised that we're going to be carried on the Create Network in the fall. So those who don't know is PBS Create is a network that does only creative shows. So it's like woodworking, cakes, um, knitting, quilting, all that kind of stuff. And it's carried a lot more widely and it's also nationally programmed. So like if it's on eight on at 8 o'clock in Columbus, it's on, on at 8 o'clock everywhere as opposed to regular PBS, which is locally programmed. So like Make It Artsy is on at 3 a.m. here, <laughs> you know, when you're up and watching. Um, but it could be That's on. That's what the DVR yes, is for. But it could be on at another time anywhere else. So anyway. The, to get on Create, though, you have to be uber, super non-commercial. And one of the issues that we had um, is that uh, – this is going to sound crazy, but the Scan and Cut is so, is so cool a machine and so unique that they felt it was too commercial when they would see it being used. And, like, the producer had to sort of argue with them and be like, listen, if it were it, – we're just using it. We're not even – we're not saying the name of it. We're not, you know – whatever. And they're like, yes, but it's so specific. You scan it in and it cuts things out and, you know, and it's like, well, because that's what you do with it, you know? So it's been a real <laughs> uphill battle on that one. Cause they, it's just, it feels, it feels too commercial because it's just so cool. So, uh, hopefully though, uh, I think they finally have managed to figure out that like, it is just a tool. It just happens to be like a really cool hole punch, you know, and it, we just use it. 
But uh, anyway, that's an ongoing and exciting battle. Uh, anyway, so I went to Cleveland to film Make It Artsy. And there were a lot of new guests who had never been on the show. Now, new guests are always fun for me um, and scary and fun and scary and fun. But I guess that's what amusement parks are for, right? Scary and fun is the same kind of thing Um, because they sort of – they're, they were given a lot of instruction before, so they know, like, they have seven minutes for their segment, and they have to bring their step-outs, but step-outs are actually a difficult concept to understand. Why don't you talk about step-outs? So, um, so step-outs. If I want to make a mixed-media canvas, that has many layers which need to dry, so... For or had has repetitive things in it. So for every dra- layer that needs to dry, or for every repetitive thing, I need to create a step out. So uh, layer one is painting my background onto the canvas. So I need to have one that's already dried and painted. Layer two is putting a second color on and then scratching into it. But then I need that to already be dried. So now I need to have a second canvas that has layer one and layer two. Layer three is adding a stenciled pattern with molding paste on top of that. So now I need to have canvas one, canvas two, canvas three. Now I'm going to color the dried molding paste, you know, and add some speckles. Okay, so now I need to have canvas one, canvas two, canvas three, canvas four. Okay, so now I want to add some embellishments onto there. So, you know, as long as there's nothing there that needs to dry or is not layered, then I could just, you know, leave it alone and just bring that and have a final finished canvas. But if there are layers and other stuff that needs to get dried, then I need to build those. Those need to be step out. So for one little mixed media canvas, you could have to bring a stack of like eight canvases that are each at a different stage of that project being done plus your finished piece. And as you know, like replicating art is not always easy because you're sometimes just doing it by feeling. So it can be very, very difficult to do. And sometimes it's hard to figure out where the step outs are because sometimes it's not a drying time issue. Maybe it's a, uh, you're going to do this drawing and in real time that drawing takes three minutes. Well, the segment is only seven minutes. So you have to have pre, have one where it's pre-drawn, you know, or pre-colored or whatever it is. So it's actually quite a skill to be able to break it down into those steps. And I was trying to explain to my assistant, Suzanne, yesterday, the difference between photo step outs and video step outs. So when you're doing a blog post that let's say has step-by-step photos, the photo that you share is the moment after the technique has been completed. So if you're saying spray this with red paint, What you have in the photo is something that has been sprayed with red paint. And if you were like, let's say, doing photo step-outs for a magazine, that's what you would send in, is you would send it in the moment after the thing has happened. For video, your step-out is actually the moment before. So what I need to prep out is not the thing having been sprayed red. I need the moment before it's going to be sprayed red because on camera, I'm going to do the spraying. It's a small difference, but it's vitally important when you start to go through your step outs and look at them. And I know um, 
I know that Suzanne doesn't always get it because sometimes when she helps me prep out, I'll go back and I'll go through stuff and I'll be like, oh, wait, that's the moment after, not the moment before, or, you know, this is this step is missing, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think that's the easiest way to think about it is video step outs are the moment before the exciting action and photo step outs are the moment after the exciting action. And can you talk about when you're writing the directions? Mm. When you're writing the directions. So I actually have this with an article that I'm working on right now for cloth, paper, scissors. So the article, they actually, they asked me to write something that included the scanning cut. It turns out, I was I was thrilled to hear this, but it turns out the scanning cut is one of the most requested items on people's wish lists in the mixed media, you know, cloth, paper, scissors world. And so they were looking for an article that incorporated some techniques using it. And I said, you know, I would like to, I wrote to the editor, Janine, and I said, I would like to write this article, but I don't want to include a lot of like fussy choose home, then go to shapes, then click your shape, then resize your shape, then, you know what I mean? I don't want that. I, I don't want it to be a manual. So I said, can I link to some, uh, or, you know, have available to people to say like, this is what you're going to do with your scanning cut. If you need the end of the step-by-step instructions on how that works with the scanning cut, then, you know, go here and watch this video. Otherwise, you know, continue on. And I, I think it's kind of like if I said to you, you're going to do a light wash in the background with some blue paint. Most people who've done some painting would say, that's, that's all the instruction I need. I can do that. Somebody who's never painted is going to say, what the hell is a wash? And what light blue do I use? Does it mean that the, do I use like the color light blue? Do I use like blue mixed with white? Do I, you know what I mean? Like they have a lot of questions about something basic like that. So for people, when you're writing an article, do you need to have all the instruction about like what a wash is and what exact light blue you're thinking of? Or do you put in like the general idea and assume most people get to it? So if the scan and cut is a paintbrush, which it isn't, but you know what I mean, it is a, of a sort, then so what I was sort of thinking about is how do you write instructions for people who know how to use it so you can say, like, choose your shape, you know, and cut it out at the size that you want, but people who don't understand that basic instruction, which to me is the same as saying use a, do a light blue wash, you know, that they need the extra instruction. Does that make sense? Am I talking in a circle? It makes sense. Thank you. And I think any article that's instructing people has to be accessible to all, but interesting even if you already have a basic level. Yeah, I think that's that's always the magic point. And this is the thing that we say all the time on Make It Artsy, which is your project needs to be accessible so that someone who's a beginner feels like, oh, wow, I can do that. But it needs to have some bells and whistles so that someone who's advanced goes, hey, there's a tip, an idea, a concept, a shape, a whatever that I hadn't thought about. So, for instance, this season, Mary Hetmansberger came on, and she's a metalwork artist. And she was showing us just tons and tons of techniques to do with a plumber's torch. 
Now, you know, ever since I took metalwork classes like 10 years ago, I have wanted an acetylene torch in my house, but I don't have the real setup to have a proper jeweler's bench. And acetylene is really dangerous and it would break my lease. And it's like, you know, a total disaster. But a plumber's torch is a much smaller device that really can be used inside that doesn't require enormous ventilation that basically works off the same kind of tank that like a camping you know, uh, lamp would work off of. And obviously it's what plumbers carry around with them, you know? And so she showed all these different techniques you can do using a plumber's torch. And it was so cool because for me, I had seen a lot of the basic techniques she had shown about like annealing and like balling up some wire and stuff like that. But just the notion of being able to use a plumber's torch to do it got me excited. Well, also, don't you have this method where you know a guest is coming on to show certain things or you yourself are planning to show certain things, but then you bring some extra samples to give people an idea at the end of the segment where they could go with it beyond the initial instruction. Yeah, I always try to do that because it's the same way like in my blog post, I'll say, listen, I did these for Easter, but why don't you take them and do it for, you know, Valentine's Day or Mother's Day or, you know, hey, I did this on a canvas, but hey, you could paint this, you could do the same technique on your shoes or your wall or whatever else, you know? Because I think it's important to remind people that they don't have to follow the formula from, you know, A to B. It's just an idea. Okay, so tomorrow you're leaving on your third trip to New Jersey for the month of May. Yes, I love New Jersey. Uh, I'm going to New Jersey for another prototype product, different one this time. Um, working with some people I've never worked with before. So that's a little nerve wracking for me just because new clients are always, um, you want to do a really good job for them, you know, and, uh, they also are not particularly, uh, don't have long roots in the craft industry. So I feel a lot of times when I say something that carries a lot of weight. So I have to be really careful, you know, about that, or didn't, just you aware. Also, didn't you also find in one of the previous New Jerseys that because you had a film crew that didn't a know you, b know the product, c had not made craft videos before, that they were learning on the job and it took longer? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I'm very used to filming, as I mentioned, with Kathy Stell at Make It Artsy for a lot of stuff, or at HSN where they're very familiar with stuff now. You know, and they sort of get or understand like the basics of how it all works. And so it's the team that we shot with um, the week that I went to the Rauschenberg exhibit, they previously had mostly done medical devices. So it's not that they don't know how to shoot or any of that kind of stuff. It's just everything is a different beast. It's the same as like when you look at um, designers who try to design for plus size women and then they discover, oh, you can't just make it bigger. <laughs> yes, you can't just make it bigger. It's not actually, doesn't actually work that way, right? That actual, like, mm -hmm. really well-designed plus-size clothes, it's like there's all kinds of stuff that's shifting and changing from the shoulder to the ratios to, you know, the angles of things, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is the same thing, which is like, is it the same to film a medical device and a craft device? Well, similar, 
you know, they're, they're both kind of devices that get used and held and that kind of stuff. But, you know, the feeling, the, you know, setup, the needs, et cetera, can be quite different. So that, that's always, you know, an issue. So now tomorrow filming with, um, a crew I don't know, a client I don't know, a studio I don't know, a it's it's I'm sure I'll have anxiety dreams of some kind tonight just because I'm it's a it's a new prototype machine I haven't used that much. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff around it that makes me feel nervous. But I think I'm prepared. I hope I'm prepared. I hope they're prepared. I think everybody's in good spirits and I will do my best and I will put on some of those eight eyelashes that I bought there, like my fierce warrior wardrobe that make me feel like I know what I'm doing. If I'm wearing my eyelashes, <laughs> I was just watching, uh, some DVR, uh, episodes of, I think it's called something like Victorian slum house. It's on PBS and they have a bunch of people, it's filmed in London, who volunteered to live in a recreation of a Victorian slum. And each week, they advance them 10 years. So it could be 1870 one week, and then the next week it's 1880, and they slowly introduce things. And beyond the fact that it's extraordinarily exhausting to watch because they're so tired, they're so hungry, the pressure is relentless, and you really do understand. And they're how, not even dealing with, like, typhoid and, like, exactly. you know. Exactly. But what I was going to say is there's one couple that has come in in this new decade, and they're an Irish brother and sister. But what I see is the woman who is the sister— she still has, she's wearing her false eyelashes and a little bit of lipstick. And I guess there are limits to even how much you're willing to do to be in this show. I mean, I just, it really struck me because everyone else has this gaunt, you know, right. absolutely uh, stringy haired look. And there she is with her eyelashes and her lipstick. Well, maybe she has an eyelash weave. You never know. That's entirely possible. Because I can't maybe imagine her eyelash glue. You yeah. never know. Could be. I, I know a woman who got her um her eyeliner tattooed on. So That sounds really A, dangerous, and B, painful. That sounds so painful to me. Can you imagine someone tattooing your eye? I can't imagine someone oh. tattooing my hand, let alone my eye. Anyway. Yes, I'm a wimp. I can't imagine. I would cry. Like when they tell me I have to get a flu shot, I practically like leap out the door. I can't imagine sitting for a tattoo. Actually, I watched the movie Moana last night. And in it, there's a moment where this warrior is being tattooed and he's like, you know, being very whiny about it. And I was like, dude, I would be so, I can't imagine because those huge, beautiful tribal tattoos, you know, that they have in the movie all over like their back and shoulders and chests and stuff. Can you imagine sitting for that? If somebody tried to poke me that many times with a needle, I would lose it. I actually think, uh. You have to think ahead to, like, what is the goal? I guess. So, like, when you're getting the Novocaine in your gums, right. you have to think it's less pain than it would be without the Novocaine. I guess. 
Let's briefly say, when we're talking about patterning, mm-hmm. that people can still buy, uh, although the initial uh, weeks of designing stamps for patterning your online class is over, people may not understand that you can buy at any time and you get all the lessons now all together and you do it at your own pace and you have it forever. So I'm selling it. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> You're doing such a good job. Yeah, all my online classes are forever. You know, buy them anytime, do it and get it. I, you know, I haven't done a lot of promotion for the stamp carving class. I know you've been on me saying that I need to. I've just been really busy and, you know, I just haven't had a chance, but I'm hoping to put together a little video promo and some other information about the class because it is, I think, a really fantastic class and the stamps that I've seen this students make are really great. And I hope to share some of that on my blog too. So that's coming soon. It's on my to-do list. It's not just a carving class. That's what I am so impressed with. Yeah, it isn't. So it actually really isn't about carving almost at all. Most of what it's about is about designing. So I kind of think of it as the, so you already have my book or so you're already interested in carving those kind of stamps, but you're frustrated because they're not turning out the way that you want or they're not as complex or as interesting as you'd like or you don't quite know how to approach it from a design point of view, even if you understand the technicalities of it. So I really tried in the class to really emphasize these are these are the things that I look for every single time. This is how I take a design and I make it better. This is, you know, how I, uh, you know, make choices. This is why I'm doing this, making it, you know, making this a circle instead of a square, et cetera, et cetera, to try to convey all those things because I wanted to give people, um, I mean, we've been talking about teaching really this whole episode, but I, I think I... One of the things I work really hard at is trying to get people to be able to fish, as they say. I don't don't give a man a fish, you know, teach him how to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. And I think I this class for me was trying really, really hard to go where a book couldn't have gone. There was just no way for my book to give you this kind of like information and detail about design thought. The book is really a technical manual, and so this is in many ways a companion, which is really talking about getting into my design brain. Why do I make the decisions that I make? So you can too. Well, some people can. Everybody can, Ma. Everybody can. Anyways, so this has been a definitely a video vixen month. Uh, I'm super excited to come home from this last trip. I'll come home in June to a brand new month in which I think I have a limited amount of travel, which is fantastic. Um, and, uh, and you have some really interesting things happening. We bought a dress. Yes. This last week, and I can't wait to see the final blog post about it. So we are super Maxinistas. We went to TJ Maxx. Um, so I had this idea. I'm going, so the MFA annually or the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston has a summer party every single year in June. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of like people who wear serious dresses. I mean, like really expensive, actual designer, fancy, fancy, expensive stuff. Um, and you know, I'm much more of the like, do I really need a gown for, you know, five hours of my life kind of person? So I, my, I can't remember how it started. Did you say that I should paint a dress or did somebody else say it? I'll take credit. I I feel like it was not you, 
but I'll say, okay, I'll let you have this one, but I don't think it was you. Somebody said to me that I should just paint a dress because I was lamenting. Oh, I know what it was. I was saying to that I was saying that I didn't want to wear a black dress because I feel like all I wear is black. And I was like, but how am I going to find a colorful dress? They don't make a lot of plus size colorful dresses that aren't like mother of the bride, you know, kind of dresses. And I feel like I'm too young to wear mother of the bride. So somebody who may have been my mother, who may not have been, said, why don't you just paint a dress? And that started us on our hunt, right? So we went yes. to TJ Maxx and we found a dress, which you just, you continued to call hideous constantly. Every time you looked at it, you didn't even want me to try it on. You were like, it's so hideous. It's hideous. I was like, mom, it's going to be painted. It's just about the shape. It's ugly. I don't like it. You just hated everything about it. It has like this lace trim at the bottom that you just kept calling ugly. It has a pattern on it that you kept calling ugly. It has a, like everything about it you hated, but then I put it on and it fit really well. That's the important piece. Which was the important piece. And the fabric is this really stiff kind of like polyester-y. I don't know how else to describe it. It may not be polyester, but like taffeta-y, you know, kind of fabric that's going to be perfect for painting. Um, and so we took it to the tailor because it needs to be taken in a little bit. Um, and even at the, and even, the hideous lace even at the remote. tailor. I was going to say, even at the tailor, you were sure to say to the tailor, look at this hideous lace they put on the bottom. I need you to take it off. <laughs> anyway, so it really bothered you. Um, so as soon as I pick it up from the tailor, I think I pick it up from the tailor like three days before the event. So I'm going to madly have to paint it because it's going to need drying time and curing time. And if I want to do any layers, the, each of the layers will need drying time. So that's going to be a bit of a mad dash to get it done. But I'm excited because I'm excited to be able to wear like to an art museum an art garment. So you'll share it with everybody. I will. And the best part of all is I th what did it cost at TJ Maxx? Like 50 bucks or something like that? It was a fantastic price. It was a good deal. For a gown. It's true. It's true. For a formal gown. Exactly. So I hope it turns out great and I can wear it to all sorts of events, except that it's the kind of dress I'm sure once you wear it with one group of people, everybody remembers seeing it. Ah, uh, the problems. I know. Sad but true. That's, that's definitely a first world problem. <laughs> okay. Anything else you want to share, Mom? No, but come over later and we'll have that meatloaf. We'll have our pajama meatloaf. I'm very excited about it. Okay. So as always, you can find me at ballsdesigns.typepad.com. Um, do leave us your comments or questions at ballsdesigns.com slash arting. We'd love to hear from you. We really hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast. You can do that in iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Um, also, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, that's always good so people know how much fun the Adventures in Arting podcast is. If you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast and thanks so much for listening and subscribing and we'll see you the next time on the adventures in arting podcast